to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Alex Leishman, founder and CEO of River Financial. River is a Bitcoin native financial services firm that offers Bitcoin acquisition and management products for individuals, as well as a variety of institutions and high net worth investors through their private client services division. They've also recently begun offering a Bitcoin mining product, which allows their clients to own their own mining hardware and establish regular Bitcoin denominated income, or what's become known as SATS flow, while River takes care of all the work to make it happen. In this show, Alex and I have a wide-ranging discussion about the growth of River, the details of their new mining offering, their approach to the Lightning Network and possible future applications, the notion of social progress and how we should be thinking about it, becoming a Kardashev Type 2 civilization, and much more. River represents what is still a very small initial cohort of new financial services companies, which are focusing exclusively on Bitcoin and building out a suite of products and services that allow people to unlock more of its enormous potential. In my opinion, Alex and the team at River have built a brand imbued with the Bitcoin ethos, which is likely why they are so well respected in the industry and why it was such a pleasure and an honor to have a discussion with him today. Enjoy. There we go. Alex, how you doing? Doing well, John. Happy to be on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It's been a while since we had we did a podcast together on on my show. I don't know how long ago it's been now, probably over a year, maybe even two. And then we saw each other briefly in uh Miami on like the last day or maybe even one of the one or two of the days after the conference. It was great to bump into you briefly, but we didn't get much time to talk about what's been going on with you and River and stuff like that. So perhaps to get this rolling and maybe as an intro to some of the people that may not be familiar with you or, or river, why don't you give us the, the intro or the spiel and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Sure. So I'm the uh, founder and CEO of river financial where we are a Bitcoin financial institution. We build, we build products that help people establish and build their Bitcoin wealth, um, brokerage, custody, mining, and some other cool things to come. Um, my background is I've actually, I've actually, believe it or not, spent most of my career in the Bitcoin space. I, I moved to the Bay, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, uh, back in 2013 to pursue a career as a Bitcoin software engineer, and have been mostly doing that ever since. Um, I've recently moved out of the Bay Area, but I'm uh, still working on Bitcoin. Well, that's what we were just talking about before we press record. I mean, uh, it's probably a bit of a sad story, but why the move out of the Bay Area? Yeah. So, you know, there's been a general deterioration in the state of San Francisco, um, the state of the Bay Area. Um, the people running this, uh, you know, this city and, and this region in general are, are just very left wing, um, which, you know, always ends very poorly. Um, and uh, and so, you know, it's really impacted the quality of life uh, in, in general and uh, also just impacted, um, you know, talent acquisition. COVID was really a, a sort of double whammy because, um a lot of people who had been living here were staying here because of the network effect uh, and just, you know, the value of being around the other people in the industry. COVID kind of broke that and gave everyone an excuse to leave and sort of escape, um, you know, the, the sort of crazy government here. And they've all fled and dispersed, you know, across the country. So, um, yeah, I've, I've recently moved back to the East Coast where I'm, where I'm from originally um, and been, you know, been a lot happier there. I, I know this is not like why we're having this conversation today, but we, also we can talk about whatever we want. But why do you think it is that the broadly speaking leftist policies 
which seem to so evidently cause degradation in the jurisdictions in which they're applied. Why do you think it is that it doesn't cause like a course correction by those very same people enacting those policies? Is it incompetence? Is it corruption? Like, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, you know, so, you know, one of the things I say is, you know, only only the the, the left wing can sort of take um, the most beautiful place in the world, you know, California, um, and the largest wealth creation event in history, um, you know, the, the, the tech boom of the last few decades, um, and, and create a place people don't want to be. Um, and I think that's because, um, you know, I, th- I think fundamentally, you know, what drives especially and, and, and you know, to be clear, you know, the, the, the left wing element running San Francisco is, is so far off the spectrum of like normal of the normal political spectrum that it, it is somewhat unique. Um, um, but you know, I, I think they, um, largely, uh, you know, strive, I think they have this insatiable appetite to appease their own self-righteousness. Um, I think that they will like, that is fundamentally their goal. Um, their goal isn't to improve people's quality of life. Their goal isn't to see economic growth. Their goal is to appease their own self-righteousness and their own self-conscious. So what they end up doing inevitably is, um, you know, putting our tax money, putting our resources towards, um, sort of people in these bad situations, homeless, drug addiction, um, you know, criminals, um, they don't have what it takes to actually stop that. So instead they, they just incentivize more of it um, because they feel sorry for these people. Um, they give them more things to do drugs. They make it easier for, for sort of drug addicts and drug dealers to exist in San Francisco inevitably just making the cracks in society deeper and creating a, and creating a city that families don't want to be in. Um, and nobody who wants a normal life wants to be in, uh, all in the pursuit to feel good about themselves. And what is it that you think causes them to fail to reassess their assumptions or their priors or their ideologies, you know, that they are, you know, as you say, like they think they're right. And so they're trying to impose them. But at what point do, do you look at the data? Do you look at the outcomes, the results of the the application of those ideologies and decide to course correct? I mean, there seems to be very little of that, especially in California. You know, I think it's a, I think it's a fundamental just worldview difference about like what, um, you know, what fundamentally is, uh, is ethical. Right. Um, I think there's just like a fundamental difference and, and like, and worldviews and, and what success and and being a good person means. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the, the ideology of of the left out here is revolves around victims, right. Um, their obsession is about being the protector of victims. And Mm -hmm. so, um, Frank, I think what inevitably sort of the more victims there are, the, the more they have to do. Um, you know, a world without victims is not a world where this political ideology can thrive. Um, so sort of what it ends up creating is just, um, you know, more victims, a lot of victims. (laughs) Yeah. Tragically. Um, so why New York? I mean, I think, are are you from that area originally? Because that's another area which certainly doesn't seem to be the same extent uh, as like a place like, uh, San Francisco or California generally, but there's been a lot of left-leaning policies applied in that jurisdiction as well, it seems. So why, why have you moved to New York? Yeah. So, I mean, the reality is every city is, you know, on the left side of the spectrum. Um, there really isn't, you know, aren't many cities in the United States where that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, New York is different though. It's not as radical. Um, and people there tend to be a bit more just moderate and normal. They're focused on producti- productivity, the city itself, the infrastructure, the, the, the culture, 
it's just way more fun. There's way more people. Higher density is a great place to be young. I'm not from New York, um, but uh, I am from the East Coast, so I am much closer to my family. Um, and I also spent a lot of time in Florida as well, um, you know, for the escape to the the states where, you know, if I am close to somewhere where, you know, I could I could jump to if they bring back mask mandates and things like that. Right. Um, so what's been going on at River in the intervening period since we last spoke? I mean, how are things going? We're going to dig into some of the different, like the new lines of business and stuff like that. But just on the, in terms of, you know, helping people facilitate the purchase of Bitcoin and helping become the intermediary into, or the entry into this Bitcoin denominated world that we're all imagining and striving towards. I mean, what's going on? How's it been? Uh, things have been going well. Um, you know, we've been growing the business a lot. Uh, we're focused right now on you know shipping new products that um, you know people haven't seen before that they can't get anywhere else. Uh, you know, we our, our Bitcoin brokerage product was the was the first pillar of our business. Uh, I think we did a really good job building that up, building out a really great client base. Um, we have two tiers really to our service. We have the normal uh, retail segment um, that itself was you know somewhat higher end, but then we had our private client service that. Um, you know, where we effectively brought in a lot of VIP clients and, um, you know, onboarded uh, really, really, you know, impactful people um, into Bitcoin. And so the next phase of our business is focused on, okay, how do we help people get more Bitcoin in new ways? Um, You know, being able to buy and sell Bitcoin is cool. We differentiated ourselves on our service, um, but there's a lot of places to buy Bitcoin, right? Mm. Um, And uh, how do we, how do we really take it to the next level? And so that's where the mining product came in. We realized that there was no one-stop shop where you could have Bitcoin brokerage and mining in the same place. And a lot of our clients were really interested in mining. Um, and because we are a financial institution, because we have the licenses and everything to, to handle people's Bitcoin, we realized we were uniquely positioned to provide the seamless mining experience where you can buy your own Bitcoin miners. You own the machines yourself, but you buy them through us. And um, we abstract away all the complexity of hosting miners, dealing with mining pools, dealing with custody. Um, and so our new, our new mining product effectively experiences you buy Bitcoin miners in River and the Bitcoin shows up in your account every day. So you're basically buying a Bitcoin cash flow. Um, mm. And it's been you know, pretty compelling for our customers. I, my miner went online recently and it's just really fun to see the Bitcoin show up in my account every day. Um, and as, as the world moves towards a future where, um, you know, bit people are viewing Bitcoin as their base currency, um, you know, b- getting Bitcoin cash flows, uh, is going to be something that a lot of people want. Yeah. I see your screenshots of like how much, how many sats you earn today as a result of your mining rigs being up and like, I'm jealous, but I also wonder like, as you, I mean, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, how this is kind of like a Bitcoin denominated yield which is really cool, right? But of course, like if you buy the miner, the opportunity cost is being able to have bought the same amount in USD of Bitcoin. So like, what are the economic considerations that you think people are making, or maybe even you yourself have made when you make a decision like that? Yeah, it's a great it's question. Super cool. It's super cool. But what are the economics of it? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And the, and the answer is the economic returns of mining um, are dependent on variables that the economic returns of just buying Bitcoin um, are not. And so basically it's, you know, there's a few different perspectives that people who are mine, who mine have, um, people who think in a Bitcoin denominated fashion, um, are comparing it to the potential returns against Bitcoin. Um, in, in many ways, buying miners is a diversification, um, 
uh, from buying spot Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin miner, the Bitcoin miner itself is an asset that is correlated to the price of Bitcoin, but it's not one to one correlated, right? There's a there's other factors. So if you believe that there's going to be silicon supply shortages over the coming years, that's um, that's a you know point uh, in you know on the side of you know going long Bitcoin miners, right? Because there's going to be an extra scarcity there. Um, if you uh, now the Bitcoin miner itself also the prices tend to lag the price of Bitcoin when the price of Bitcoin goes down. So the value of your miner um, sort of has you know a little longer staying power than the price of Bitcoin. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, uh, there, there's another aspect to Bitcoin mining, which is sort of like the tax stuff. Um, you know, there's people who buy Bitcoin miners because it's equipment you can write off um, and depreciate. Um, so there, right. the, there are certain reasons, you know, why you actually may want to do that over buying spot Bitcoin. So there's, there's a number of things. And then, and then there's the dollar denominated return profile, which is, you know, much easier to reason about. It's basically here's the dollar upfront cost. There's a pretty, you know, predictable, you know, dollar return over time, and that's compelling to a lot of people because you don't really get that when you buy spot Bitcoin. Right. Is there like a range of reasonable probability expected yield, either in BTC or in dollars? Like, let's say you put ten or twenty grand down for the miner, based on your annual like yield in BTC. Like, is there a percentage that? you're able to identify or is it just too erratic to nail down? Um, you know, like, so from a Bitcoin denominated yield perspective, um, the, uh, the, the, the return profile is, is really going to be based on the Bitcoin price and difficulty, right? Um, if the higher the Bitcoin price goes, I mean, the better it gets because you have this fixed hosting cost, right? Um, Mm. but you're getting this Bitcoin, you know, monthly, um, but your, your cost for it is fixed in dollars. Um, so the more the Bitcoin price goes up, the more compelling that looks. Um, then there's also the difficulty question. You know, if you look at history, you know, there, there are sort of these black swan events that happen, like China banning Bitcoin mining. Like the Bitcoin profitability just skyrocketed, you know, overnight, um, you know, when that happened. So there are things like that, that, you know, that could happen as well, which make it hard to really put a probability on. Now that said, you know, barring anything like that, there is a pretty good, you know, you know, probability that the, that the difficulty will continue to increase. Um, but, you know, in the spare market, it's also possible that some big miners, you know, sort of have financial difficulties and those, that equipment sort of, you know, goes offline or, you know, there's all sorts of interesting things that could happen over the coming years. Yeah. What's the equipment uh, situation like right now? Like how much lead time do you need for new gen miners and are, are there still supply shortages or has that been mostly resolved? Like the supply shortages are actually on the, um, on the energy side, not, not just energy itself, but also just like places to plug in miners effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of equipment out there. Uh, There isn't a lot of, there, there aren't a lot of places to put it. Um, and you know, one of the benefits of us is we have, we have these, we, 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 um, we procure long, hosting capacity long-term. Um, so every quarter we're procuring out into the future, more places to put Bitcoin miners, something that a retail investor individually could not do themselves. Um, so we have this capacity, um, at very advantageous prices because of economies of scale that we're able to pass through to our customers and, and provide them places to plug in, you know, miners that they wouldn't be able to have themselves. Right. I noticed in one of the videos that, uh, River put out on Twitter 
that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the power rate is uh, 69 cents or, or 0 0.069. 6.9 cents a kilowatt hour. 6.9 cents a kilowatt hour, right. Is, is Which the is, average price. It, you know, it, it, can, it can vary, but that's, um, that, that's, those are the recent prices. And those are locked in. So when, yeah, so that's my question. So one, when is that determined? Like if, if someone wants to buy a rig with River and have it hosted and, and engage in that offering that you guys have, how and when do they determine what their power rate is and for how long is it locked in? Because obviously we're in an environment now where both inflation and, you know, the crazy energy situation, I mean, locking in energy prices, I mean, that would be great if you could lock in a few years for the consumer, but how well can the, the energy providers sustain the, those prices, you know? So what's the dynamic at play there? Yeah, and that's one of the great benefits of, of, of using us because when you buy your miner, you're buying it with, uh, the, it's a sort of a deal, right? And the deal includes the price of the machine and the price of the electricity for, for three years. Um, wow. So that's a, that's a locked-in rate for three years. And we're able to do that because we've locked in our prices for three years or more. Some of, some of the procurement that we do is a five-year agreement. Um, and so those prices are locked in all the way up to the energy provider. And, um, you know, so if you do think there's going to be a lot of inflation, this is also another sort of potentially good bet to make. Is there any concern that the energy provider can't like fulfill that lock-in price in the current environment that we're at? Like, has that ever come up or is that coming up with you guys? Like they come back to the table and be like, sorry, it's like we need to renegotiate or we go bust sort of situation. So, you know, we work hard to make sure that these systemic risks um, are, are, are things that we're sufficiently protected against. I mean, typically these rates are locked, are, are locked in with very reputable large utilities um, like ERCOT and things like that. So, um, you know, it, it's a pretty safe bet. Um, that said, you know, there's, there's no such thing as zero risk, but we do as much as we can to make sure that that doesn't become an issue. Um, right. So, you know, to, to the extent that... You know, for example, an ERCOT can live up to their promises and, and legal legal contracts, uh, you know, it will be fine. And what is the current price of a new gen or ballpark? Because it may fluctuate a little bit, but, but new gen miner that you guys use or offer clients? So the prices change weekly. Uh, I think the mo most recent, um, this last week with the, with the price dip, uh, S19J Pros, which is the sort of standard top of the line model, um, 100 terahash is... is think somewhere in the $9,000 range, uh, for, for one unit. Um, and right now one of those is mining around 0.015 Bitcoin a month or so, give or take. Man, sats flow. It's what everyone is thinking about these days, right? Like how do you generate as much sats flow as possible, whether it's mining, lightning, whatever business you're engaged in, like how do you just open up more streams of sats flow? And I mean, this is obviously a very attractive way of doing that. How liquid are the is the market for rigs right now? Sounds uh, it's quite pretty, liquid. It, it's pretty liquid um, because this the, because this product is newer um, for for us. Uh, we haven't had too many instances of our clients wanting to sell their machines, but that but providing more and more liquidity to our clients uh, for their for their mining machines is something that we are you know looking to to do as time goes on. Um, yeah. You know, mining is different. My, miners are, are different than Bitcoin itself because they are fundamentally non-fungible non assets. You know, every miner itself is unique, um, has a different age, uh, has slight variations in hash rate. Um, maybe the board broke. You know, there's all sorts of things like that, which make it harder to just like say have like a unified sort of price. 
But um, there are huge opportunities to provide more liquidity to retail, and, and we are focused on, on doing that. What's the average or, or um, like predicted depreciation in uh, a new generation miner? You know, because like after the China ban, like people are still plugging in S9s like yeah. all over the place. So how, like what is the depreciation, depreciation rate on new generation miners? So, you know, I think this this week, actually, a lot of S9s finally went unprofitable. But, you know, until recently, you know, S9s were trade or, were, you know, selling in dollar terms, like five year old S9s were selling for more than their initial, you know, purchase price brand new five years ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, now so so really, the, you know, so there's a question of sort of, um, you know, how long will one of these machines stay profitable? And then there's a question of like, how, how long would it last in theory if you just kept it plugged in? So in terms yeah. of like how long it would last in theory, um, you know, the, the answer really is it depends. Uh, it depends on a lot of factors. How, what environment are these sh- machines running in? How well are they maintained, taken care of, et cetera? We, ke- we keep our clients' machines in high-quality COLA facilities with, you know, technicians on site um, and things like that. So, you know, they, the machines can last anywhere from, you know, Called four to seven years, depending on how well they're taken care of. Now there are always anomalies, right? Um, mm. uh, it's more about their machines, um, so you know it's a probabilistic thing, right? Some might may fail sooner than others. Some may last way longer than others, but that ballpark—that's sort of the estimate. Yeah, but I think the economic lifespan is more relevant, right? When you're actually trying to calculate the depreciation of the asset. So, and I know that's also very difficult to nail down, but do you have any uh, guesses about like h- how long a new gem miner will last into the future from here? I mean, the answer to that really depends on um, what Bitcoin does um, over the coming years. I mean, we're we're very bullish in Bitcoin, which means we think that the economic life of these miners is substantial. Um, we think that the Bitcoin price will continue to go up, um, you know, on average over the coming years and, and through the next halving. Uh, so. We think that these are fundamentally good long-term investments. But that said, I mean, you know as well as I do, nothing nothing is certain. Um, but if you're long Bitcoin, uh, you know these machines should have a u- pretty useful long-term economic life. And you, you touched on this already a little bit in why you're making this offering to your clients because it just it kind of integrates well with what you're doing, and people want uh, Sats flow and different exposure to the asset. And, it, and you can abstract so much of it away and just make a very seamless experience with people that are already on board. Like what else about the industry led you to believe that this would be like a, a growth bit, like stream of business? You know, there's other players in the market that have been offering similar services for a while. Was it just looking at them and being like, wow, there seems to be a lot of interest in, you know, in pleb mining, as it were, like people just buying a couple of miners and having them hosted by somebody else? So the major catalyst was actually China banning Bitcoin mining. The, um, you know, last summer, uh, what, what we saw when China banned Bitcoin mining was that machines started flooding into the United States and mining all of a sudden went overnight from being this kind of foreign thing, niche to most Americans to um, front and center. Um, and retail interest, you know, all over the world really started to spike um and 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 starting to to mine bitcoin um and we saw that trend and then we we saw a lot of our own clients asking us about about mining um and that sort of sparked this you know you know 
like sort of strategic thinking, like, wow, you know, we're actually very well positioned to offer the most seamless mining product out there. Yeah, there are other providers and and there've been, there've been, you know, there've been mining hosting facilities that will host, you know, retail miners for for years now. Um, Yeah. But none of them have been financial institutions. Um, we realized, you know, it was still sort of the hobbyist who who did have, a, you know, a level of sort of technical expertise that allowed them to set up their mining pool account and then set up their own custody. Um, and we, we saw that there was a huge opportunity to completely abstract away even that complexity um, and just, you know, just fold a mining product directly into a Bitcoin brokerage and custody platform um, so that you didn't have to worry about any of that stuff. Um, you know, when you, when you have a, when you have your, when you're using a product where your machines are hosted in a facility and you have to, and you have your own mining pool account, um, you have to keep track of how well your machines are doing. If something breaks, you mm-hmm. have to then notify the host. Like it's this whole thing, right? Um, we keep an eye on your miners. If something goes down, we'll take care of it. We see it you know, we'll fix it. Um, it, it's a, it's a much more seamless experience, uh, because of the way right. we built things. And this only launched very recently, right? Was it April that this service launched? So yeah. The, so we're launching things in phases. Um, so we have, a you know, our first batch of clients who've bought miners are up and running. They can see the, the sats streaming into their account daily in the, in the, in the river app. Um, What's left to launch and what will be coming soon is the buy flow. So recently, um, historically, when your our clients are buying miners, they're buying it through our uh, our sales team. Um, you know, it's like a docu sign. You know, send, send the payment. Uh, soon that will that even that will be sort of abstracted away. You'll be able to just click a button on the app, buy miners. They'll go in your account. You'll see and you'll see the 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 sat start to stream. And how quickly are they set up once they're once the the purchase button is pressed? It depends on the deal. So it, uh, so it, there, there will be anywhere from instant to, you know, one or two quarters out, depending on the deal. For example, um, if it's a S 19 J pro deal and we have inventory that's already up and running, um, it could be anywhere from instant to like just a few days, um, where it's switched over, you know, where it starts mining into your account. Um, or it could be sort of maybe a, a future model that hasn't been produced yet that we're pre-selling um, that won't come online until you know October. Um, but you mm-hmm. want to buy it because it's got a better efficiency um, or something like that. Are there limits to how many you can buy as a as a customer? <laughs> there aren't any practical limits. I mean, there's always there's always a limit, um, but we mm-hmm. haven't seen anyone hit it yet. Right. And when you open it up in the app, like you get to see an update of like everything, right? You have an interface for like keeping track of your mining. Is that correct? Yeah. So, um, you know, I see if I can show you here. Um, I can, uh, I don't know if it, so this is the, uh, I don't know if that maybe doesn't like, maybe that doesn't, uh, yeah, I mean, it's Show a straight up. line from bottom left to top it's right. A straight, yeah, it's a straight line up. If you buy miners, you'll see that. If you buy more miners, you'll see it starting to go parabolic. Um, basically, you know, you, you'll see a payout. You'll see your miners, your fleet is what we like to call it. Um, and you'll see the sats to stream into your account every day. You'll see a chart that shows you sort of the incremental amount you've mined. You'll see the hash rate of your existing machines. Um, that, that hash rate itself, you know, a lot of people think, oh, if I buy a 100 terahash machine, um, it's just like, runs perfectly 100% of the time. 
in reality, these things are, are, are not perfect. They have variants. And so, you know, you'll see your, maybe it's 102 one day or like, you know, 98 the next day. So we like to give people visibility into the performance of their machines as well. So you'll be able to keep track of that. And, um, and, you know, we'll be building out more cool stuff, uh, That's awesome. over, the, over the coming year. How do you envision, um, I guess the opportunities that might emerge when this reaches a certain scale, right? Like when you're able to go, to a colo facility or a power provider and say like, we've got orders for a thousand miners to be plugged in, you know, what, what can you do? Or like, how, how does that type of scale affect what opens up to you guys? So we think that, so, you know, what's different from us than, you know, anyone who's done you know, mining for retail in the past is we're a financial institution. So what we're very excited about is the financialization of this um, and being able to build other financial products on top of mine, uh, on top of the direct machine ownership model um, that that we provide today. Um, you know, so we have a number of ideas that we're working on there. Some cool stuff to come. Nothing, nothing to announce yet. But I'm also very excited about you know, the future fundamentally of of mining. Um, I think that so so today we partner with high quality colocation facilities uh, to to house um, our clients' miners. These are all U.S. based. Um, because we want to make sure that we don't put our clients' machines at risk. We've seen what happens, you know, when people have machines in Russia or Kazakhstan or something like that. You know, maybe you'll get slightly cheaper energy, but you're also, you know, introducing a geopolitical risk uh, that's that's getting you that lower price. Um, yeah. And uh, which could but, even but, happen you know, within the states, though, right? I mean, look what just happened in New York. So, I mean, obviously, you're going to work with places that you're very confident that they have a, a favorable policy towards, you know, proof of work mining, let's say, but even there, it's a consideration. I mean, how, how would you handle such things? A absolutely. It's a consideration, but, um, we are, we do try and stick to jurisdictions where we do think they, you know, they are safe, uh, Texas, North Dakota, um, Georgia, places, places where we don't think it's high risk. And, and, you know, even in New York, the situation isn't great, but the reality is, you know, your miners aren't going to be seized by the government, right, right, um, right. unlike in some foreign country. Right. Um, and there will still be an opportunity to at least move them or, or at least own your equipment. Um, the property rights will still, will still apply. So, um, you know, we, we try and sort of play out the risks ahead and, and deeply part of the, part of the name of the game in mining, there, there's all sorts of risks and the value we provide is, is thinking through those risks and, and, and mitigating as many of them as possible for our clients. Yeah. You mentioned that you want, you're exploring opportunities, uh, that emerge as a result of being a financial services company who offers this sort of product. And I feel like I know the answer to this question, but I'm sure a lot of people, when they look at an offering like this, they'd be like, well, gee, it'd be great if I could get financing for this sort of thing, you know, maybe even fiat financing, because that would make that would make the sacrifice, you know, potentially easier to bear. Is that something that you guys have explored or do you kind of not even deal in in fiat rails whatsoever? It is actually, and we we actually have um, we all we already do provide uh, sort of a, a payment plan for clients who don't want to pay up front, and we are going to be leaning into scaling that up and making it you know easier and easier for for people to to buy this equipment without too much upfront cash outlay. And does that like what's the trade off there between the time value of money that basically you assume the burden of rather than forcing the client to assume the burden of and like 
what the opportunity cost of doing that is for yourselves, for plugging in your own miners or buying your own Bitcoin or that sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, so the question there is, well, where does the cash come from? Um, right. You know, and so we, we have a number of ways that we handle this, right? You know, as, as a company, we can use our own balance sheet, we can use our own cash. But like you said, that's, um, that's high opportunity cost. Um, but then we also have other capital facilities that, you know, as, you know, as, as an institution, you know, we're able to access debt facilities and things like that, that we can use to, um, to uh, scale up the financing for our clients. Yeah. You know, the, the whole mining thing, and I think you're right in saying that it, it, like a lot of oil was put on that proverbial fire as a result of the China mining ban where all these S9s became available for cheap. And like it became like kind of like a hobbyist boom, right? Like everyone started buying miners and tinkering around and people that did, never thought they were technical or anything. And now it's so cool. Like you, you go on Twitter and you see all these different applications using miners, like heating, heating houses, greenhouses, heating hot tubs, immersion cooling experiments, all this kind of stuff. Like where do you see... I mean, obviously with you guys, it's not so much for the hobbyists because they don't have physical interaction with the, their machines, but you know, where, what is your vision for consumer level involvement with protecting the network, you know, Bitcoin mining as we move forward? Cause it seems like, you know, we had that kind of thing where a lot of people became hobbyists with, you know, running their own nodes, like putting together their own node and then running it that way. It's starting to happen with hardware wallets, you know, and it's probably somewhat as a result of this general ethos to want to reduce as much as possible the trust that you're uh, you're having to take on as to engage with these products or to engage in the network. And so you're minimizing your attack service if you're more if you're using generic parts and you're putting putting it together yourself. But how do you see, you know, this aspect of maybe that trend continuing as we move forward? So I, I think the trend towards you know people. You know, doing their own self-sovereign setups when it comes to custody and mining it, it is great, um, and we are uh, we are huge proponents of you know people doing things themselves. Um, when it comes to sort of our clients being being able to basically um, you know vote with their miners, uh, you know, and and I think it makes it sort of important to talk about specifics. Like, what would that even look like, right? Um, you know, there's a level above the miner. There's the pool, right? And at the end of the day. Um, it's really the pool that's often making the quote unquote governance decisions um, mm -hmm. on any proposed change to the protocol. So let's let's say there's a soft fork vote, right? Um, it would be the mining pools <laughs> voting. Hypothetically on, speaking, let's say there's a soft fork speaking, proposal, right? Yeah. Okay, so you know, as 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 River, you know, you know, one of the things that I like to think about, and this isn't a feature we offer today, but it's definitely something we're we're, we're thinking about, is like how do we let our clients. Um, participate, you know, in, in voting with their hash rate. Um, and it's not a simple solution. One option is basically to allow them to select which pool, you know, they, they want to, they want to point their miners to, um, mm -hmm. there are other, you know, pool cons, um, sort of mining pool protocols coming out like, like or, or that, that have sort of, that are being tried like strata V2 that would allow the individual miners themselves to, to, to vote. Um, but, it's a problem we're thinking about and, and thinking through. There's no, there's no sort of silver bullet here, um, and uh, but but certainly something that um, is top of mind. Hundred percent. That would be a very cool uh, option to have integrated. Um, It'd be pretty cool to be able to just like click a button, like see propose, see like softworks, and be able to just like click a button, like I want to vote for these with my miners, and we just sort of like make it happen. <laughs> It very much would, but that, I mean, does it open up 
a whole nother can of worms about, I mean, I guess not because it's, it's putting the individual more in control and ultimately that's a good thing. It's kind I of think. like, um, it's kind of like Robin hood letting you do a shareholder vote on the app. Right. Right. Um, right. Something like that. Yeah. I like, I mean, power to the people, right? I, I like it. Um, you mentioned this a few minutes ago, but that, that the miners generally lag the Bitcoin price are the price of new gen miners coming down right now or have they started? Uh, to? Yes. But yeah, the price. So, you know, the prices of the machines to are pretty correlated with the price of Bitcoin. There's typically a lag though. Um, and the prices, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, you know, these, these mining markets are made, you know, Bitmain obviously is a big player. And then there's all these sort of brokerage shops behind the scenes that, that facilitate, you know, and, and match buyers and sellers. A lot of this happens over Telegram um, or right. just text. You know, it's kind of like OTC was in the early days of Bitcoin, um, where everything was just coordinated via like, you know, chat rooms. Um, and so, you know, there's not like a ton of like price transparency, but that's changing. And so, you know, one way to look at it is the price per terahash. Um, that's sort of a way to normalize price across different machine types. Um, and so what we're seeing is the price per terahash, you know, has come down, you know, a decent amount in the past two weeks. I think I asked you this when we first spoke and it probably is a dumb question, but I'm still going to ask it because your, your comment about like kind of acting like an OTC market with the rigs made me think of it. But as an exchange, you know, when you offer to sell Bitcoin to your clients, right, you're likely dealing with something like that behind the scenes to gain access to the Bitcoin to purchase. And so, so ultimately, like if, if you track it back through all the different intermediaries, how is that Bitcoin being brought together into a pool to be made available to purchasers? Like what, what's, what's the behind the scenes process there like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, the Bitcoin markets are pretty interesting because there, it's not like, it's not like the traditional securities markets where there's like one exchange uh, and you know, there's one, it's, it's much less centralized. There's all sorts of places where these markets are made. Um, so we utilize sort of two categories of liquidity providers, um, exchanges directly. So, um, you know, we'll place orders on, on exchanges, uh, you know, like, you know, order book exchanges, um, to fill orders for our clients. Um, and then we will also use OTC desks as well. Um, and sometimes we'll net out trades internally, right? So if someone like buys, you know, if you buy one sure. Bitcoin, the same time someone else is selling one Bitcoin, you know, we'll, we'll just net that out. Um, yeah. but let's say, you know, kind of one way to think about it is like, we're like river has like a, sh on any time interval, river might have a short or long position, right? If somebody is, um, you know, buying a bunch of Bitcoin, then that means we're kind of short Bitcoin and we need to go like top up. And so we'll make yeah. a call. It's like, are we doing that on exchange? Are we going to do that via an OTC desk? And a lot of it depends on like, where do we think we can get the best price? Um, and, you know, what are the markets looking like? And so totally. you know, the, the, the most of the volume is going through these OTC desks. Um, and, you know, most people aren't seeing, seeing that. Right. And how do they aggregate the Bitcoin, which they sell to you? Like, who are they dealing with to source the Bitcoin? So the OTC desks are doing business with tons of players like they, they have their own book right they're going to be like long or short bitcoin at any given time and the way OTC desks work is you basically say i want to buy this much bitcoin or i want to sell this much bitcoin and they'll give you a price and you accept it or not um and they're basically um you know 
just serving as this intermediary for all the people trading with them and making this market and trying to take their spread, right. right. Um, to facilitate these orders. Um, and you know, these are the places that, that, you know, and they're probably also doing, and they're also doing their own trading on exchanges as well. There's, these are typically sophisticated, you know, trading shops. Um, you know, you know, some of the most popular ones like Cumberland, for example, um, you know, they're a subsidiary of an existing sort of larger trading, like traditional trading firm. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so that, that is like their bread and butter. And, uh, and, and so this, these are like the places where like the big, you know, the big whales are trading through. Right. And so those, those desks, desks or those services are, have relationships with whales and basically manage it, have access liquidity through them. And then obviously, you know, uh, provide them a return of some kind for the access to the liquidity, liquidity. And that's, this is kind of how it works. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, they might have, they, they, they have their own balance sheet, right? They may, they may keep a big Bitcoin position. Um, and at any, at any given time, they'll have like a sell price and a buy price internally. Um, and maybe it's different for different customers, right? It, it really just depends. Right. And, and the way you interact with them is via typically an API or even via Telegram, right? Um, some of the biggest orders are still, you know, you're in a Telegram room with an OTC desk and you say, hey, I want to buy a thousand Bitcoin. What's my, give me a quote. And then you accept or reject. Um, right. And they have basically they have a bunch of guys sitting around, um, you know, <laughs> facilitating these orders with their with their customers. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Right, right. Um, last question, I think, about the mining stuff. But Normyland has a lot of misunderstandings about Bitcoin generally, and particularly the necessity for proof of work mining and what it means and its impacts. And you know, there, there's a lot of weird ideas out there around energy today, even X Bitcoin. So now I, I, I get, I presume that you're dealing with mostly like fairly orange pilled customers, but has your foray into the mining industry caused any extra scrutiny on you? And have you had to explain anything to regulators or investors in, in like the using energy is bad sort of domain? Not really. Um, you know, maybe, maybe like a very minor amounts, but I would say generally, you know, our clients, um, one, I think the ESG thing is it, it itself kind of a fringe thing. Um, and it's just not a force that, you know, frankly, I ever let get involved with my company to begin with. Um, so it's not something I, I I've had to deal with. Um, and so it really hasn't been an issue. Um, most of our clients, you know, it, you know, frankly, like if you don't like Bitcoin mining, you're not going to like sign up for river, right. You're not even going to like talk right. to us. <laughs> so it's not like we have people calling us being like, why do you offer yeah. Bitcoin mining? Like, you know, I'm mad at you. It hasn't been an issue. Right. What do you, what, what is your typical refrain, you know, may, and this might just be like at the family dinner table or, or wherever, when people bring up the, the, the mining and the energy FUD around Bitcoin mining. Cause I mean, the voices are becoming louder, at least in certain outlets today, you know, and oftentimes they're very misinformed and they don't understand the big picture, but what is your typical response to that stuff? Yeah. So, you know, my, my response is always one. So Bitcoin mining is making a healthier grid, right? Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin miners are the energy purchaser of last resort for American energy. Um, having that energy purchaser of last resort allows, 
um, allows power generation to scale up in a more economically viable way. That also applies to renewable renewable energies. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, right? We there can you know there's a valid debate to be had around you know like coal power plants and things like that. I don't think it's not a debate I get into, but I say you know basically if you think coal power generation or X or Y power generation shouldn't happen, then focus on that. Right. Ban that. Don't focus on the use of energy. You know, um, we use more energy during Christmas for Christmas lights than, 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 than for Bitcoin mining. Right. Um, getting into this debate about what is a valid use of energy is a rabbit hole that has no end. Right. We can have all sorts of conversations. Or is, is Las Vegas uh, a good use of energy? Um, mm. Is the airline like do, does anyone really need to fly? Um like we were fine before flying. Like, do we really need to fly anywhere? Like, it, you know, it, it just gets to this level of absurdity. So, um, you know, focus on the root cause of what you think, you know, environmental issues are not on people using energy. Right. Well said. Um, you know, you're obviously a financial services company of a sort, at least, you know, attempting to be that and offering different financial s services. So you are that. Um, and, you know, we've, we're in a very, unique macroeconomic environment, which obviously has a big impact on financial services and financial instruments and products and performance and all that kind of stuff. Now, again, I think you're probably working with a group of people that has an above average financial or economic literacy. And perhaps as a result, you don't need to do as much, you know, market update type of stuff that so many other people in the industry might do. But what is your take or uh, opinion on, you know, where we are right now in terms of the, the macroeconomic climate, because there's a lot of, a lot of crazy shit going on, you know? <laughs> yeah, there is. And, and, you know, um, you know, I, I have sort of like different levels of thinking here, sort of on, on one level, you know, I'm not a macroeconomist and I, and I think, uh, I believe it was Thomas Sowell that said this, you know, it's, it's easier to macro bullshit than to micro bullshit. Um, it's really easy to like give macro predictions, uh, you know, like, um, fundamentally, um, I, I kind of have more certainty about the long term than the short term, um, short term, there's a lot of complexity and, and day to day sort of volatility in the markets. I don't know what the market's going to do over the coming months. Um, but long term, I think the collision course is crystal clear. Um, the United States has printed trillions of dollars and we have an unsustainable debt. And we're, um, you know, more and more kind of face this, um, this, uh, you know, terrible choice of raising interest rates and going into a recession or, um, but making our debt, you know, even more expensive uh, or, or lowering rates and, and, you know, you know, keeping the sort of wheels churning and, you know, the, the, the cheap money flowing, um, but risk more and more inflation. Um, and I think we're in a really bad spot there. I think the best outcome is sort of a smooth transition to a better money, um, a harder money. And I do think that, that, um, there is a world where there isn't this terrible collapse. Um, there is this actually smooth transition to Bitcoin, um, as, as the reserve currency, uh, I don't know what time frame that play that that happens in. Um, I do think that it's something that is decently likely to happen. Um, could be wrong, but uh, that's sort of like how I see things playing out over the years to come. Um, whether it's 10, 20 or longer years, who knows? In the short term, you know, what's clear is that, um, you know, that like the policy making in the United States is, is very broken. Um, 
the focus right now is just on the totally wrong things and nobody is doing anything to make the situation better. They're preventing, you know, the, uh, they're, they're, they're hindering America's energy capacity um, when, pri- when energy prices are skyrocketing. Um, We're sending tens of billions of you know, U.S. dollars to foreign countries um, instead of focusing on deregulating and removing the frictions on American growth and prosperity. Um, you know, the government shut down this country for two years and printed trillions of dollars, and we're reaping the consequences today. And it's mm. not going to end well. And the people in power right now don't seem like they're, they have any desire whatsoever to actually fix the root causes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's almost like you look at the things that are happening and you look at the decisions being made and you kind of think to yourself, if I wanted to intentionally make things bad, could I, would I choose anything different than these? Could I get away with anything more than these policies? And in many cases, the answer, at least to me, seems to be no. Which again, it makes you, you know, come back to the question like, well, well, man, is it incompetence or is it malice? And it, the answer is probably both in different circumstances and different people. And, you know, how, what kind of narrow view or what you're focusing your attention on in, in the whole milieu of governance and policy and all that kind of stuff. But we just seem to be in the, well, that's why we call it clown world so much, right? We see the things that are being done and you're like, that's the exact opposite thing that you should be doing to resolve the problems that so many people are facing. And, and I think the incentives are, are odd. I mean, so for the people in power, so, you know, and we have, we have significant problems on both sides of the polit- political spectrum today, right? Don't get me wrong. But, but on the oh. left, the, the sort of the, the perverse incentives on the left is, um, you know, in, in a world where every American is prosperous and happy and thriving, they have no power um, because their mm-hmm. power comes from having this victim class that they can politicize um, to, to, to force things on people, right? It, there's always got to be like a victim to justify what they do. Like um, there's someone who's a victim of racism. There's someone who's a victim of, you know, economic injustice. There's somebody who's a victim of X, Y, or, like that's the platform. So, so, and so, you know, what we're seeing is just more creation of victims, which gives them, you know, um, more political power. And uh, it, it, there's, some, there's, there's, there's something perverse about that. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. And hopefully, you know, Bitcoin is a forcing function to correct all of these perverse incentives, right, that cause this weird behavior. And and again, I, of course, I don't know how long it's going to take either, but it's certainly encouraging that we may wind up in a place in 10 or 20 or 50 years where those incentives and those signals are no longer uh, like they, they no longer really have a power. And as a result, we're probably going to get much better behaviors constrained by the incentives that Bitcoin both provides and uh, prohibits. I agree. And I, and I think we are sort of seeing a lot more people sort of waking up to this. Um, and in what we need is like a, a depoliticization, de-politi- um, you know, right. it's like, and I think what like what Bitcoin allows us to do it like fundamentally sort of hopefully how it plays out is it, it takes resources away from, you know, federal government. Um, which is, it's just like this, this, this polarizing political force in the United States and, um, you know, forces people to sort of two extremes of a political spectrum. Um, and hopefully brings us back to a world where we can focus on our communities. We can focus on our families, um, and focus on, you know, building healthy and prosperous lives. Um, I would love to see that happen and I, and, I, and that's what I want, but we, we shall see. 
Yeah. Well, I think we're all working towards it in our own, both personal and trying to contribute to solutions on a broader scale. But actually, you know, before I, I was, I want to jump into something else, but this is a, a, something I've been thinking a lot about, and it is the notion of progress and what progress actually is. You know, I think as we grow up and we go to school and we exist in the modern era, we kind of just assume that progress is a chronological thing whereby of course we've progressed from the 1500s from you know the founding of rome from ancient egypt and all that kind of stuff and you might have people say well there were eras of cultural you know beauty or there was more cultural stuff happening but by and large it's a like it's a up and to the right progression of progress and i think i think we need to discuss the validity of that assumption a lot more that just simply by virtue of the passage of time and perhaps the conveniences and technologies that we have available to us that means progress i mean what are the metrics we should be looking at when we're we're trying to judge progress should we be looking at life expectancy maybe maybe not i mean if you live a horrible 88 years versus a awesome 60 years i mean which one is better you know if you're if you're if the state of mind that you inhabit most of the time as a result of the political paradigm you exist in or the, you know, the socioeconomic paradigm is shitty and is not as good as someone who is a, a subsistence farmer 4,000 years ago, is that progress? You know, and the reason why that's important is because we need to know what we're aiming for if we have any chance of actually getting there, you know? So I, I'd love to know your, hear your thoughts on that. I think that's a great point And I have what I think is a good answer. Um, I think what we should be looking at is energy consumption per capita. Um, I think energy consumption per capita is one of the best indicators of human flourishing. Um, and if we look at energy consumption per capita in the United States, there's something called the Henry Adams curve. The Henry Adams curve shows the energy consumption per capita in the United States that increased compounded about 2% annually um, since the mid 1800s and plateaued in the United States. And in, in around 1970. Um, now, a lot of this was because manufacturing started to leave the United States. Um, but fundamentally, you know, that time frame corresponds with sort of a plateauing of sort of, of quality of life in the United States, I think most people w- would agree. Um, and so I think we need to get back on that curve. Um, and now that just doesn't, doesn't mean, you know, like you just build power and all of a sudden everyone's magically better off. It's a, mm. it's, but, but it is a, is a way to look at sort of, um, it is a very simple metric to look at and see sort of, you know, energy, you know, energy is life, right? The more energy that we can use effectively as humans, the better our lives are from time immemorial, right? Um, yeah. It's the power to transform our environment around us and to improve our quality of life. And right now that's been, fl- that's been flat for 50 years. Um, Mm-hmm. And I, so I, I think that's what we should be looking at. And we need to be asking the questions, why is that happening? And I think a lot of it is because of government overregulation. I think a lot of it is because of um, sort of backwards cultural shifts. I actually do think that there is a large group of people in the United States that are fundamentally anti-human flourishing, whether they explicitly sort of acknowledge that or not. I think a lot of the green movements, um, you know, they have some good intentions. You know, I think everyone, nobody wants to see our world become an unlivable, um, you know, ugly dystopia of an environment. But, um, you know, if you, but, but if you just look at sort of a lot of the, the sort of progressive causes, um, they're anti-child, 
they're anti-family, they're anti-human flourishing. They're, um, you know, I, I've seen I've seen billboards here in San Francisco criticizing um, Elon Musk for building spaceships, saying we need to use we should be using that money to help poor people. I mean, I mean, it's just like the most backwards thinking you could possibly imagine. I, these people have no understanding of history. Um, you know, the only thing in the history of the world that has ever improved the life of the ordinary person is technology, is technological progress um, and advancing and people working hard to advance our civilization. Um, largely, you know, one, because they're interested in it two because it's good for them. You know, they, they generate, there's an economic incentive in doing that. Um, technological progress doesn't benefit the wealthy all that much, right? A rich person in ancient Rome, um, or a rich person, you know, you know, before the invention of plumbing could have servants bring them water, right? Um, plumbing brought water to everybody, right? Um, and, um, so, you know, that's my take. I like it. I like it. And I think there's a good point there where a lot of these people that are in the catastrophist sort of camp, it's almost like the question should be, well, whose suffering are you trying to alleviate? I mean, are you trying to alleviate human suffering or are you trying to alleviate some notion of like a conscious earth suffering? And I'll like, just for the record, I'm an extreme admirer of the natural world. Like I want to preserve it and enjoy it and see it flourish more than like almost more than anybody. But I think like what's the only thing more important than that is alleviating the suffering and fostering the flourishing of human beings on the planet, you know? And I, I think there is a way that we can do those things in harmony, but we can't isolate one or the other and just focus on it exclusively. Right. We have to, you know, look at the big picture there. And I think you're the way of characterizing progress, I'm going to steal that and chew on it and use it in future conversations because I think that is, a, that is a good metric, but maybe it's just one side of the coin, right? Like the energy per capita means like the capacity to do work, resist entropy, have optionality per person. And that's good because options and capacity is good. It still begs the question, to what end should that capacity be devoted? And maybe that, that the answer to that question is resolved in the cultural, philosophical, theological conversations that constitute a culture and a society, right? Like, what should we be striving for? And what's, what's so encouraging about Bitcoin, and I'm so excited to see it take shape, is when you have a, a money whose information and value signals isn't distorted via arbitrary increase in the supply by a supermarket entity, it actually over time will reveal what taken together is most valuable because the, those things that each person holds as most valuable and their sacrifices in a market, their work and their time is expressed is an expression of that will allow to be revealed in its pristine, un, pristine, unadulterated form. And then we can kind of contend with, Oh, this is interesting. This is what the aggregate like values of everyone is conjuring up. And then layered on top of that, it, like, so that's the reality and layered on top of that is the discussion of whether this is the proper orientation and how should it be massaged or moved or reoriented to move us towards something that we think is going to make our lives better and sustain us well and promote human flourishing, like you said. And I think it's essential that you have an incorruptible signaling mechanism between a value between people in order to determine what that is. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And, and you know, that that's what prices are and that's what money is. And, right. and the root of that is, is it, you know, if you don't have good money, um, all of those signals get completely distorted. Completely agree. Yeah. And I think this relates somewhat to your, I saw on your Twitter handle, you're a, like a Kardashev type two maximalist or, or bust or something like that. Can, I mean, I know it's related, but can you just kind of explain what you mean there? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a big fan of this thing called the Kardashev scale. Um, Kardashev, uh, he was a, he was a, uh, Russian astronomer, uh, and he wrote this paper back in the sixties, I believe about, um, theorizing about, you know, what, what is the, what would the energy requirements be for an alien civilization to contact us or communicate with us, um, based on sort of the fundamentals of, you know, radio physics and things like that. Um, and, uh, he, 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 he then sort of, when the interesting, an interesting kernel in this paper was this scale he proposed of like the levels, how to, how to, what are the levels of a civilization? And he proposed that the, you know, one way to look at how advanced a civilization in the abstract is, is how much energy it can produce, um, or consume. And, um, he, he, the way he built the scale was, he said, you know, there's, there's three core levels, uh, level one is a civilization that's capable of, uh, of capturing all the energy available to its planet, um, which would put humans at around a 0.6 or a 0.7. Um, and the level two is a civilization ca- capable of capturing, uh, the, the energy available to its home star. Uh, so for humans, that would be the sun. And, um, a level three is a civilization cap capable of capturing all the energy available to its, to its, uh, to its galaxy. Um, and, uh, so all of the stars in the galaxy, um, which of course is sort of a a level that's, I think so unfathomable at this point in our sort of level advancement that it's interesting to continually think about and theorize and strive towards, but it's a little bit too big of a goal. Um, it's much easier to reason about, okay, how can we start capturing the energy of our whole sun? And I do think there, there are some interesting theories here. I, I love what, like, obviously Elon Musk is doing with let's, let's go to Mars. Let's try expanding into other planets. There's another sort of approach. Um, this author, um, you know, Robert O'Neill, um, in uh, his book the, um, "The High Frontier," uh, theorizes um, that you know humans will expand off Earth into all over the solar system, but a lot of part of the population, trillions of humans, will be living in custom habitats um, with artificial gravity, sort of potentially these rotating large cylinders with human-friendly environments inside, orbiting the sun. Um, and, and, um, over time, you know, there's so many of these that they're, they're all, they're all capturing the sun's energy and, and, and this would eventually be what, what, you know, would, you could call it Dyson swarm. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, there, there's actually this interesting, you know, theory that, um, we actually can't see the stars of other advanced civilizations because they're swarmed around their sun and they capture all of its energy. So it doesn't like reach us. Um, yeah. So anyways, I love that vision, um, because I think it's, I think humans need a frontier. Humans need something to strive towards. There always needs to be a frontier where we stagnate and start like, you know, turning inward. And, um, I think that's just such an important thing for us to have this really, really, really big goal. And that's why I care so much about it because I think that's the driving force for like continuing, um, human, um, human flourishing and advancement. Mm-hmm. I agree. And this actually ties back to, well, the flourishing and the energy use argument. Whereas 
you know, what do you think? And again, we're totally in the realm of speculation, but it's starting to become, uh, maybe not obvious, but it's starting to seem like Bitcoin mining is going to play a pivotal role in humanity's use and channeling of energy toward whatever our ends may be. Because as you said, you know, 20 minutes ago, being an energy buyer of last resort and always having an energy buyer of last resort means that like you can just continue to hunt for more energy and you like, no matter how much you can access, you can, you can take it, you know, and that's never really been the case. And so how do you see the acceleration of our increasing access and use of energy, you know, per capita or, or just on the whole being affected by, you know, more, well, being affected by Bitcoin mining and it's, you know, broader and larger application and use and development. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the jury's still out, but I, my, you know, my theory and my hope is that as Bitcoin mining continues to grow, it continues to become this carrot, this carrot, um, for more and more energy production. And, uh, and I think we're already starting to see this, um, Crusoe mining just did a deal with Exxon, um, where, um, you know, they're, you know, they're utilizing their flared gas to, uh, you know, to, to mine Bitcoin. Um, I think energy companies are, you know, from what I hear sort of behind the scenes are starting to get smarter about Bitcoin mining and are starting to, you know, have, are, are building out plans to just do mining directly themselves. Um, so I, I think overall, my hope is that, you know, Bitcoin mining does incentivize you know, energy production. Um, you know, I, 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 what I'd love to see is um, new nuclear power plants being built um, with like, energy with, with Bitcoin miners as like the first customer, um, mm. just ready to go. And uh, um, so, you know, we'll see. I think we're, we're at like a very early point where Bitcoin mining and the energy industry are really starting to the, those worlds are starting to collide. Um, and yeah. I'm very fascinated to see what happens over the coming years. Yeah, me too. I mean, how many stranded or waste energy assets are just out there decommissioned or just unavailable to be brought to market because the infrastructure doesn't exist to do that or there's too much loss in the process or whatever. And now you can just plug in Bitcoin miners at, at source and you can harvest that energy. And as we keep saying, like for the good of humanity, effectively, you know, when that's when that happens on mass, you're bringing more energy to bear for humanity humanity to be able to deal with and trade and produce and flourish. And it's, I mean, it's super exciting. It's kind of mind blowing too, just to think about how once more and more people catch on to that, especially like people with energy assets or energy producers, I got to think that they're, they're going to be pretty stoked about it as well. Yeah. And, and also, you know, you know, I think I think I actually do think the jury's still out on on sort of certain renewables like like solar and winds, but you know these things are variable and you can't control when the power is generated. And um, for those, mining is even sort of more compelling because mm-hmm. uh, you know when, so, when when you know when when the wind is blowing and no one's using the energy, it's just a loss. Um, it's just like lost energy. So yeah. um, you know, with Bitcoin mining, you can you know make it much more economically compelling to build these, this kind of infrastructure. Yeah. If that's a rabbit hole, but we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Um, yeah. River has, I think one of the highest capacity lightning network or lightning channels nodes. Uh, on the go nodes on the go rather like you have almost 150 channel or no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that, is that what it is? hundred, like 130 Bitcoin in the, in the capacity? 
Yeah, so we run, we we were one of the biggest Lightning nodes in the world. We've uh, since since we launched, we supported Lightning, you know, the, the Lightning network and River. You can you know, deposit and withdraw in Lightning from your River account. Um, and uh, you know, we think there's huge potential in the Lightning network, and um, it's uh, it's not just got potential just to move Bitcoin around, but to to sort of be a platform for financial product development. Um, you know, we're already sort of seeing, you know. Like you know, the ability to put capital to work on the Lightning Network being very interesting, um, and we have a team dedicated towards you know basically building out the next generation of Lightning infrastructure for us um, to hopefully you know bring some pretty interesting products to our customers down the road. Am I right in assuming that that amount of capacity is almost more for what you just said in terms of building out new infrastructure and just making sure that you know how all this functions and channel management, liquidity management, all that kind of stuff, rather than because of the needs of your customers in terms of liquidity? So our customers use the Lightning Network to just move Bitcoin on and off our platform. Um, right. And then our node is then also, because it's big um, and because it's well-connected and and has you know pretty high uptime, um, it, it is also core infrastructure for other people um, and other apps that are using the Lightning Network are, you know, utilizing our node for for routing and access to mm-hmm. the broader network. And so what do you think, because there's this interesting idea and, well, it's already reality to some degree, but the the, the liquidity management and the, the routing capacity of different nodes at some point when it's used at a larger scale might represent like a risk-free rate for Bitcoin, right? And today it's minuscule, but... If all of this, you know, both the type of money that Bitcoin is and the way in which it's transmitted over Lightning means just orders of magnitude increases in the efficiency of capital flow and capital pricing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it would be interesting to think that being integral to that process is what generates, you can generate a risk-free rate based on that. So what, like, what are your thoughts on the development of that? Yeah, uh, I think... That's also our theory that that, that sort of the, the liquidity price is going to be the the risk free rate for Bitcoin. Um, the market is still very young. Uh, I think we're still a few years from seeing any real maturity there, but there's a early sort of there's an early sign of it, and we want to be at the center of that. And um, so you know we will see. I think the Lightning Network is is the great thing about it is, is it's a network, and the network effect is 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 starting to really show. You know. The more the Lightning Network grows, the more valuable it becomes, um, which is a very uh, nice, nice feedback mechanism. And mm. you know, we've seen our Lightning Network node grow substantially over the coming years. And if the trend continues, um, there's going to be a lot of money flowing around uh, two or three years from now. What are some of the other ways in which you guys are looking at, or leveraging, or you know, experimenting with? leveraging in the future the lightning network you know for a variety of applications that you might offer or use internally one of the things that we're really excited about is the recent taro announcement um, from from lightning labs taro is a new way to represent assets on the bitcoin network um you know probably the most popular one is going to be dollars uh so but the cool thing about taro is not only can you represent assets on, on on chain uh, if, if you're similar with the concept of colored coins, it's sort of like a modern, more modern version of this. Um, but then you can transfer these assets via Lightning. Um, 
which is pretty cool. So, um, you know, sort of small brain, you know, you'll be able to transfer dollars over lightning, bigger brain. You'll be able to exchange dollars and Bitcoin non-custodially on lightning, um, you know, galaxy brain, you'll be able to transfer, uh, um, dollars on your end and the merchant will be able to receive dollars and the intermediaries can just route in Bitcoin. Um, and you know, Bitcoin, it's basically like basically fulfilling the vision of what, what ripple, you know, like sort of, you know, wanted to be, um, but actually doing it the right way. Right. With Bitcoin and with the, dis- like the reserve asset. Yeah. Would the distinction be here that this would allow it to happen on the lightning protocol layer versus like, that's kind of what strike attempts to offer its clients. Right. But it, it, it does it quote unquote quasi manually on either end rather than on the protocol layer. Exactly. This could be done in a relatively non-custodial way. So, you know, you could have routing nodes basically being sort of, you know, trustless exchanges, right. Mm -hmm. Where, they're saying, like, here's my price for Bitcoin. Here's my Bitcoin USD price um, to route through me, right? And, um, you know, you can sort of, like, construct a route where the, the beginning and the end are, like, dollars or, you know, some combination of that. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it's, it's finding a path from, you know, like, let's, let's say that you have, you, you could even do it where, like, let's say you have, like, yen, right? on on lightning and i have dollars um you can route through sort of anyone as long as there's one you know there are two intermediaries that convert you know bitcoin to dollars and yen uh yen to bitcoin mm-hmm. and with those with those assets i mean what is the relationship to like the fiat world like a like a, a synthetic dollar on this protocol like what is so these these would be similar to something like usdc most likely I mean, it could be anything. I mean, there's nothing. This is trustless. Anybody could is- issue anything, right? You know, right. there's nothing stopping so are, are we have a from doing USD 2.0 <laughs> right. on on Tarot, right? Like, you know, it's trustless. Anyone can launch anything, um, and he's gonna and he says, you know, I'll algorithmically support the price of this, right? Um, so, with permissionless development becomes, you know, anyone doing anything they want, which has upsides and downsides. So you'll see all sorts of stuff. You'll see, um, you'll see like high quality stable coins, uh, like basically one-to-one backed in a bank account. Um, you'll see wrapped altcoins coming onto lightning. Most likely, um, you'll see wrapped real world assets, um, uh, other fiat currencies, you know, anyone can list anything. I think it's TBD. Like what is, you know, what's actually going to happen. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I have to think about that more. And I mean, I you yeah, know, I actually I think I think it's exciting because, you know, look, at the end of the day, like either you have something useful or you don't. And if mm. something is useful, then, you know, inevitably some people and it's trustless and permissionless, there's going to be people who use it in ways you don't like. Um, mm-hmm. but that also means it's also working. So and the good news is all these things are going to be happening ahead. on lightning and not bloating, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain. Theoretically. Right. Right. As a financial services company, I mean, as you guys, we were just kind of like geeking out about the, f- the future of energy and Bitcoin mining, but you could equally go down like the future of lightning rabbit hole and your mind could melt at all the possibility possibilities. Like, do you think in the future, any Bitcoin native financial services company is going to be primarily 
like operating in and offering products on Lightning because, you know, maybe the base layer is more about settlement or more maybe accumulation and, you know, just selling Bitcoin becomes, I don't know, like less popular in the future. How do you think about that? I think Lightning is one of the going to be one of the major catalysts for non-custodial, more dynamic financial products to be built on, on Bitcoin. Um, so I do think Lightning is going to be a very important foundation for a lot of future financial um, you know, products in Bitcoin. Uh, the first mm-hmm. of which is going to be, I think, a decentralized exchange. Um, and I think what comes after that is TBD. Right. Speaking about a, a risk-free rate, what do you think the future is? And again, the line of business you're in, what do you think the future is for uh, debt in a Bitcoin-based economy or system? Like, you know, borrowing and lending Bitcoin. Yeah. So, I mean, in a, in a, I mean, I think there's two phases. Like in a world where there's still fiat currency in Bitcoin, I think there's going to be a lot of demand for borrowing and there's capital gains taxes. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of demand for borrowing against your Bitcoin. Um, fundamentally, I think it's a sort of a, you know, if you see fiat currency going down and Bitcoin continue to going, going up, that's an economically rational, you know, thing to do, um, Mm -hmm. in a world where it's just Bitcoin, um, I think there's going to be less credit, but I don't think credit is going away. Credit is a very powerful tool. And, um, but I think it's going to create a much higher bar for, um, uh, sort of like giving money away. Um, and hopefully what that means is a- asset prices um, are much more reasonable. Um, mm-hmm. Housing doesn't become this store of value um, driven by, you know, the Fed just printing money so that people in BlackRock can just keep buying or Blackstone can just keep buying up homes. Because um, mm-hmm. who's going to lend Bitcoin, right, to do that? Um, so, you know, I think there's going to be less debt. Um, but I think there still will be debt, but it's unclear sort of like, you know, I, I, I don't really know, to be honest. Yeah. I think me neither. the mechanics of it kind of twist my mind in knots about like the custodial risk and how all that is managed. But I think it's fairly safe to say that if, if we do wind up in a Bitcoin denominated or hyper, hyper Bitcoinized world, by virtue of the fact that it's a real market rate pricing the capital and it's such a desirable form of capital that the the lending the borrowing rate will be much higher than it is today obviously and i think what that will do is just mean that the bar is higher for things to get produced i.e it has to be more valuable or more demanded in the market to get produced and i think you could broadly say fiat culture which we're hopefully nearing the apex of right now uh, has brought that bar down so low that it's just a wash in junk, basically. You know, it's just filled with with low value, low demand junk just because of this perversion in the pricing of capital. But when that is corrected and it's more real, it's a more real reflection of everyone's time preferences and their true values, then that gets brought up, which means the junk gets pushed down because it's not sufficiently demanded to get produced. Yep. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, the people in the market, like, you know, with this, with this, with these um, sort of uh, um, s- signals that are meddled with, you know, by the, by the cheap money, you know, people who are building for the long term are also 
impacted because, you know, the short-term people are rewarded. Um, mm. So it creates even more of a sort of perverse situation. Yeah. You know, and that's the other thing we talk about a transition and how it looks, you know, hopefully there can be a soft landing or whatever, but related to that is if we've brought forward by virtue of manipulating the cost of capital down so much production and consumption, it kind of stands to reason perhaps unavoidably, maybe not unavoidably, that's a big word, but it stands to reason that uh, if we have brought all that consumption and production forward, when things self-correct, then we have to push off a lot of production and consumption, i.e. there has to be a lot of austerity to move us from this current system to the next. And, and obviously the, the felt experience of that will be deprivation in, in many forms and will likely be uncomfortable for many. You know, maybe not the Bitcoiners who've already sold all their assets and their chairs and live like a minimalist lifestyle in, in many regards. But, you know, for people that have become accustomed to having brought all that production and consumption forward, it, it could be very difficult. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be painful for people. Um, but I, I do think there's a world where it happens gradually and not overnight. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want a spectacular collapse of our of financial system overnight. I don't think that's good for anybody. Um, you know, ideally it is a gradual shift and it, and, 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 and you know, an argument in that camp is like, it, well, it has been right. Um, you know, more and more people gradually percentage wise have gotten into Bitcoin over time. And, and that hasn't been just an overnight thing. That's been an 11 year process. Um, and it's not mm-hmm. even close to being you know, complete. Um, so there's an argument we're already undergoing this change. Um, totally. Bitcoin is already becoming sort of a political discussion. Um, and so maybe if that pace continues, it's actually going to be comfortable. I don't know. Totally. And I guess the unnecessary important other side of the coin for that consideration is during that period, the last 13 years, let's say, how many people have already been pushed into that state of poverty and deprivation as a result of the degradation of the system, right? Like how many more people are just can't make ends meet and they're homeless or they're food stamps or they're on social security or, you know, welfare of some kind. I, I, I think maybe it's, there's been more adoption of Bitcoin and that would bode well for a softer transition, but you know, as we discussed when we opened the show about what's happening in San Francisco, like more and more people are less and less able to keep up with, you know, uh, the shifting sands and the, the unfairness and the deprivation being caused by the system. Yep. And, and a large and larger percentage of people have been, are becoming dependent on the government. You know, I think like 50% of people pay taxes now or something. Um, so it's like, okay, we have half the population. They pay taxes. You mean? Yeah, like, like 50% said? of the population like doesn't pay taxes. Doesn't, okay. Doesn't, right? So, mm. um, you know, 50% does, right? And, and so, we, we, you know, we basically have half the society kind of like living off the other. And mm. um, that's not a good place. Um, that's, set up, that's set up for, you know, like bad, you know, bad things to happen. Um, yeah. I don't know how that ends. Because well, in a world with Bitcoin, it. the welfare state has a tough time maintaining itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the good thing is that the people that have stepped through into that parallel world are more able to maintain themselves by themselves. And so that they don't require the welfare state, but yeah, I mean, it's like two trains, you know, going in different directions. And, you know, if you don't make the jump from the, for- from the for- former to the latter, it may be, 
it may be challenging. But anyways, we're going to find out one way or the other, which is the exciting part. And hopefully we're contributing to getting more people, uh, you know, on the, the life raft or the right train or whatever the metaphor is. Um, a couple more for you. And I, I know you got to go in about seven minutes, but what, uh, what is your opinion, take philosophy approach at river of privacy? You know, this is becoming a more and more, uh, talked about topic at CT. We've been doing a lot of work. The team has been doing a lot of work on, on joy market stuff, you know, basically, uh, trying to make the case that privacy, well, in many cases, in many jurisdictions, it's a human right. It's enshrined in constitutions and things, and financial privacy is a part of that. And it's very important to have it viewed as such and not as a means to get away with things that you're not supposed to get away with. So what's your view on, on privacy as it relates to Bitcoin? So at a high level, um, you know, I fundamentally think the Bank Secrecy Act is unconstitutional. And one of my goals is to get it repealed at some point in my life. Um, and that said, um, we are operating in, you know, the United States legal system and we are operating compliantly. So we comply with, you know, what is necessary, um, but nothing more, um, you know, to, to, to fulfill our legal obligations. Um, and, uh, we fought, we are, we are deep, we are deeply, deeply, um, obsessed about the privacy of our clients, uh, that represents itself in, in our internal policies and just how we information share internally, um, to, you know, very strict policies about, you know, divulging any sort of client information publicly is like absolutely forbidden. Um, we'll never, you know, talk about like, for example, like if, you know, if your brother came in and was like, Hey, I have a question about, you know, so-and-so or someone's brother came and said, Oh, I have a question about their account. Um, we wouldn't even acknowledge that that person had an account. Right. Um, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of like social tricks and then we're, so, you know, we're very paranoid about leaking information about our customers. And we, you know, we take that to like any legal requests that come in, right. If there are any legal requests on behalf of, uh, that come in from the government subpoenas, things like that, we thoroughly sort of review if this is something that we are required to comply with or not. Um, you know, sometimes it is like there are, there are bad people out there. Right. So if someone like shot up a store, you know, and like the government needs information about them, like that's sort of like a reasonable thing. But, um, so, you know, every, everything, you know, there's a lot of gray area here, but we are, we're hyper obsessed with the privacy of our clients. And, um, we are very pro privacy tech when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, I love seeing things like join market and these kinds of things, um, continue to grow and, and flourish and, and advancement there. So I don't know if that answers your question, but no, it does, you know, we're, totally. we're very pro privacy. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer, I mean, there's no one size fits all, right. It's going to be, you're going to have to apply best practices in different domains, right? Like if you're an exchange, you know, to operate at any level of scale, at least currently you need to KYC your clients in most jurisdictions, right? So if you're someone buying Bitcoin who uh, recognizes the value and importance of privacy, you might just have to accept that level of uh, a lack of privacy, but that doesn't mean that when you take custody of your Bitcoin, there's not things that you can do to reestablish some degree of privacy so that those bad actors or, you know, any, any prying eyes may not be able to determine what's going on in your affairs. And that's the way it should be. Right. And I think, I think that's probably the way people should be thinking about it because there's some that you just have to, you know, you can't do anything about currently. And there's, but there, it doesn't mean there's nothing that can be done about the issue of establishing 
preserving your privacy. That, that's the, I think that's the framing it should be preserving privacy, not like attaining some special privacy. Privacy is, you know, meant to be a, a default condition in some sense. Yep. And, and I think there's, there's actually an aspect of privacy a lot of people have, haven't realized, which is that reversible payment rails make privacy infeasible for companies to, to, um, right. to, uh, uh, respect because if you if you can buy something from a company whether it's buying bitcoin or whether it's buying goods on a reversible payment rail like most consumer payment rails today ACH credit cards etc they mm. need to know who you are so that if you if they send you the goods and you say and you defraud them they can come after you right yeah um, so 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 a, an irreversible payment rail actually is is um, what's necessary <laughs> to actually allow private transactions to happen yeah no, that's a good point. I totally agree. Um, I've been noticing, this might be the last one, but I've been noticing on Twitter recently, I think we're all a little bit hopeful that there's some kind of a vibe shift happening. I think that's the termino terminology that you've uh, been using. Um, you know, what are, what are your impressions about why that might be the case or why you're, you're getting that feeling as cautiously optimistic as I'm sure you would be when you say something like that? Yeah. So, you know, Obviously, I deeply believe in the long-term value of, of Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is really the the core thing that matters here in this whole sort of like crypto trend we're seeing. Bitcoin goes in and out of fashion, right? Um, in in terms of like the, the conversation, right? Not not with me or internally at River, but in terms of like sort of the broader conversation. And then you have these alt right. seasons, these like big markets, like bull markets, where you have these random coins that just go wild. Like we saw with Luna and everything else where like naturally there's this whole new wave of people who see that and they, they pay attention to that instead of the slow and steady progress that Bitcoin has made over 12 years. Um, but then when everything just absolutely goes to, 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 to shit, you know, everyone comes back and goes, wow, Bitcoin's really just like continually like evolving step by step. And, you know, they attach themselves to that. And so like every cycle like this, you get a new generation of people who sort of learn the hard way. And I think that's what's happening again. Um, and they say, wow, lightning's like really grown a lot this last year. I haven't even paying attention. Um, wow. Like these Bitcoiners, they're like dedicated. Like they're, they're just building and building and building. Um, and that's how you like build something great is you just focus. And, and that's what Bitcoin has that a lot of these other projects don't. Um, so I think, I think there's just like a, a, a new wave of people realizing that, realizing that now. Uh, I think that's good for Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, you know, I also think there's also like other interesting ideas that like the crypto space that we've seen proliferate. Right. I think it's I think one of the things has been like stable coins, like, you know, like giving humans around the world access to, to non-custodial non dollars. Right. It's like, wow, people really want this. And so mm. now that's sort of being applied to like Lightning Network. Like, hey, like, let's bring this to Lightning. Um, so I do think there's actually a nice sort of like cycle here where like the, the shitcoin stuff gets like huge bitcoin sees some things like oh well there's some kernels of interesting things happening there um absorb that information go back keep building um and you know so overall i think it's healthy yeah no i i mean i i kind of agree you know as much as i lament uh the existence of the shit coins or, or maybe not their existence, but how many people get led astray with them and then ultimately get kind of wrecked and, and harmed by them. I mean, I think it's, you could make a strong case that there, there are experiments playing out in the real world at scale. And that is always useful for gathering data about the decisions you might make in the thing that you're working on or the thing that you think is most valid, which, you know, I know we both think is Bitcoin. So yeah, we shall see. I mean, Hopefully I agree. I, 
I, you know, like I, I, I don't view myself like I don't, I, my job isn't to pre- prevent people from losing their shirt. Like, mm. look, I'm not going to stop people from flying to Vegas. I'm not going to stop people from, you know, gambling on the exchanges. Like they'll learn eventually. Uh, and then they'll come over. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and you can make a case that it's hard to learn without making those mistakes. Cause otherwise you're kind of just, unless you really see it, other, you're trusting, you know, your word or my word or something like that. Like most people that I know, most hardcore, what would be called hardcore Bitcoiners right now have been burned by shit coins, yeah. you know, and maybe, maybe they never thought they were the thing, but they probably thought, eh, I can make a bit extra money here. I can funnel into Bitcoin. I can time it better. I can trade it. And, you know, people learn most of the time we, we have to learn lessons the hard way, but the, the benefit is, is that once you learn it that way, you really, you really learn it and you know, you, you begin to understand what Bitcoin, why Bitcoin really is valuable and why it's a place that's deserving of, of your focus and your capital and all that kind of stuff. And that's how slowly this parallel thing grows and grows and grows over time. So maybe it's inevitable and it's a necessary aspect of, of this phenomenon. Um, Alex, that's 90 minutes, man. I really appreciate you giving me the time. I know you're a super busy uh, guy these days. So any last words before we shut it down? I'd say uh, if you're a builder, stay focused and keep building. The bear markets are where the uh, progress is really, really made. And uh, if you're not a builder um, and you're just living your life, working and, and stacking Bitcoin, keep at it um, because the wealth, is, the wealth is built in the bear, bear markets as well. Words of wisdom, everybody. Well said. Alex, thanks again, man. And uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop. If you'd like to hear more from Alex, follow him on Twitter at Leishman, L-E-I-S-H-M-A-N, and visit river.com to learn more about what he and the team have been working on. Don't forget that if you send Boostergrams to us in your Podcasting 2.0 app, you can also include a message that will show up on the applicable podcast episode page of the ct.io website. So shoot us a message if you have any feedback you'd like us to see. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.